0: is Appearance Matters, the podcast. The brand new podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nicola. And I'm Nadia. And this is episode three. Last time in episode two, we spoke about the conference series hosted by the Centre for Appearance Research and the upcoming conference, Appearance Matters 7 which is taking place in London in June 2016. Registration and Abstract Submission for Appearance Matters 7 has just opened, and so we thought now would be a good time to talk about what makes a successful abstract.
1: But first, we're going to be talking with Professor Diana Harcourt, one of the co-directors of the Centre for Appearance Research, about her career to date, her involvement in Appearance Matters 7, and, uh, well, chocolate brownies.
0: Professor Diana Harcourt is co-director of the Centre for Appearance Research at the University of the West of England in Bristol. She is a chartered health psychologist and sits on the Healing Foundation Research Council, the British Psychological Society Research Board and the editorial board of the international journal Body Image. So thanks for joining us, Di. Could you tell us a little bit about how you first became involved in appearance research?
2: Oh, that was a long time ago now. I reckon it was probably round about the mid about 1994 I was working as a researcher with Nikki Rumsey and I was doing a study that was looking at the impact of diagnosis of breast cancer and it was whilst I was working on that study I became aware of breast reconstruction which was a quite a new procedure in those days and I started to look into the literature and just got really fascinated by the fact that women were being offered this option of surgery that was going to change the way they looked for the rest of their lives, but they were having to make these really complicated decisions um, at a time when they just received their diagnosis and I was really intrigued by how do you make those kind of choices that affect your appearance at such a difficult time. And as I say I was working with Nikki and she'd supervised my undergraduate research and I guess she was always there as a kind of um somebody who could inspire you with your you know enthusiasm for the subject area. So yeah. 20 years ago. And from then on, I, I, because of that interest in that area, I um, got some funding to do my PhD, looking at women's experiences of breast reconstruction. And when my PhD came to an end, I um, was looking around, and very luckily, a lecturing post was coming up at UE And I knew that it was a health psychology lecturing post, and I knew that I could have a lecturing post anywhere would be pretty similar, but what was going to make that post one that I really desperately wanted was the fact that I could carry on doing appearance research and by that stage we were just start the centre for appearance research was just in its sort of infancy at that point and there was just the chance to be involved with something very exciting right from the beginning. Fantastic thank you
0: and so throughout your career what do you feel has been the main focus of your research?
2: I'd say the thing that really got me started at the beginning was breast reconstruction and that's always been my um my main interest um but it's broadened a bit over the years so i got more interested in other aspects of cancer treatment and how those affect appearance i'm really interested in how people manage when their appearance changes for some reason so a situation like breast cancer nobody wants to be diagnosed with it but one of the things that you've got to contend with on top of all the concerns about how you um issues around treatment of the disease and the impact it's going to have on your family and your friends and your lifestyle and everything like that is how it's going to affect how you feel about your appearance and your body. And when I started out, it just felt like that wasn't being considered because it was seen as a bit of a a frivolous issue, really. You know, you should be thankful that you've been treated and you've survived. So to comp- you know, to have any issues about appearance would perhaps be seen as a bit vain. Yeah. And that's changed. People have realised now that it's it's integral to how you are and to your lifestyle and, you know, what makes you who you are. And then also just a sideways slightly away, but still under that heading of how you manage an altered appearance has been um over the last few years got really interested in burns. And again, it's when a situation nobody wants to be in, but your appearance is changing significantly for the rest of your life and how do you manage that and how we can help people in that situation
0: okay and can you let us in on what you're working on at the moment
2: well following on from the breast reconstruction area um the last uh, two or three years now i've been working with alex clark a clinical psychologist who has been fantastic and we've worked with for many years and she and i have developed the pegasus intervention which is a way of helping people be very clear about what they want to achieve from surgery so it's a goals based intervention and it's to help patients and surgeons be very clear when they're making de- when patients are making decisions about treatment be very clear about what they want to achieve from it so that they can actually the surgeon and the patient can approach decision making as as a shared endeavor and i think if we can do that then hopefully people would be better prepared for surgery they'd be more satisfied with the outcomes and perhaps less likely to come back for more revisions if if the surgery is more likely to achieve what they wanted it to achieve in the first place. In Burns, I'm a member of the Children's Burns Research Centre, based in Bristol, which is a multidisciplinary team of um, clinicians, people interested in Burns prevention, and we lead the psychosocial stream of research, and it's people in hospitals and universities in Bristol, Bath, Cardiff, all looking at how we can support and promote adjustment and good outcomes amongst children who've had a burn injury and their families. I'm also leading the Clinical Interventions Work Group of the Cost Appearance Matters Network, which is the European network that CAR is leading across 36 countries. And the Interventions Group are a group of people across Europe who are working with, in some extent, working with people with appearance-related concerns, whether that's in cancer, in burns, in cleft lip and palate, in dermatology, adults or children. And we're starting off with we're looking at a sur- we're conducting some surveys to find out what sort of interventions are being used across Europe. We don't know much about that at the moment, and if we can just find out what's being used, or more interestingly, what's not being used, and what's being used where, then perhaps we can start to build up. knowledge base and ideas of where we could go in the future and also collate some really useful resources so that anybody who is working perhaps as a clinical psychologist or a counselor or in whatever context it may be but has a and it's not their area of expertise but they have a client with some appearance related concerns we could act as the go-to place for them to collect um, you know to access resources that will help them with that particular client I'm also really interested in using different methods So over the years, I've done some studies using um, photography and photo elicitation. So we've done studies with women who have been through chemotherapy treatment, with young people going through cancer treatment, and more recently, young people and their families who have attended burns camps. And I've liked using photo elicitation in those studies because it's been a way in which you can really engage them in the research process. And instead of having to interview them or be there in the midst of something difficult happening, so for example, if somebody's going through chemotherapy, they may not have the energy or want to be interviewed whilst they're in the going through the process of it. But by photo elicitation, participants are taking photos as they go through their journey of cancer treatment or burns, and then you can then they they're in control. They choose what they take photos of and when they take them. And then, when you go back to interview them, they're talking about their photos, and that can act as re- be really beneficial in a number of ways. On the one hand, I think it can help people just remember events which perhaps they haven't remembered in so much detail, so it can act as a trigger. It can just make that conversation the interview flow and sometimes it's a really difficult situation, some people may find it easier to talk about what's happening in the photo rather than what was happening for them at that time so i think that as a methodology i think that's really interesting as well
1: okay thanks di can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to at appearance Matter seven
2: i'm very pleased to have been invited to be a keynote speaker so my keynote is going to be around visible differences in low-income countries Mm which is something I'm really interested in, particularly from the viewpoint of burns in low-income countries. I've spent some time in Bangladesh with the Acid Survivors Foundation, so I'll be drawing on some of that and research other people have been doing in the field. And I'm really interested in how the research that we've done in um, higher-income countries, how that might relate to low-income countries. But also, I think we've got a lot to learn from what's going on elsewhere. Uh So I'm really really looking forward to the chance to sort of pull things together and I hope people will find it interesting or I hope it will sort of stimulate people to some thoughts and some areas of, and I'm, Absolutely not saying I've got any answers to everything. I want as many questions from other people as as I might come up with ideas. I'm also running a workshop on the first day of the conference Mm -hmm. with Alex Clark and Nicole Paraskeva. And that's around people going through appearance altering surgery. We're looking at how we can use um, screening tools to identify people who may or may not be suitable for surgery and how we can use different sorts of interventions to support shared decision making and to be honest just generally having a very nice time meeting everybody and just enjoying appearance matters
1: thank you so we have two more questions for you looking back over your career so far what's been your proudest achievement today
2: um i think the thing that i'm proudest of is not any particular piece of research but it's been the growth of car and how um, nikki and i have worked together from being um just nikki and i and one other researcher in one very small office and we've built it up over the years with obviously lots of other people's involvement as well it's been a real team effort from everybody involved and we've now gone from that small office of three people to about 30 people still not enough office space but Mm -hmm. have created or to have been part of the creation of a really vibrant research community and in a whole area that has expanded so much in that time.
1: So just a fun question to end, and to give our listeners some context, every Tuesday at Car, we hold a coffee morning where we all take it in turns to bring in cake. Now, Di's cakes are pretty legendary. I particularly love the brownies. So, Di, what we want to know is, in your view, what has been your best cake contribution to Car Coffee? Wow,
2: gosh, what a question. I love that question because it makes it sound like I've made a lot of different cakes and I think I have only ever made several different lemon drizzle cakes and several different chocolate brownies. No, last time you did, you did a ginger cake. I did do a ginger cake. I'd forgotten about that. Okay, there have been three different cakes. (laughs) Well, um, given that Nikki makes fantastic chocolate brownies, I'll give her the chocolate brownies and I'll go with the lemon drizzle. Wonderful.
1: Thank you ever so much. Now let's turn to abstract submission, and Nicola and I are going to spend the next few minutes talking about some key do's and don'ts. A good starting point for me is thinking of your abstract submission as your elevator pitch for your research. You're selling your research to the conference organisers. You want them to invite you to present it.
0: Exactly. So you want to make it as exciting, engaging and easy to follow as possible. If your abstract is dull or unclear, then the scientific committee will most likely reject it. And make
1: sure you check out the conference's guidelines and find out whether there are any special themes to the conference.
0: It's important that your work is a good fit. Yeah, and if the conference has guidelines, then be sure to follow them. Right, so they're the general rules, but now let's talk about the detail.
1: Are there any key ingredients to a great abstract?
0: Well, generally speaking, any good abstract should include the following four main points. So first of all, what is the problem you address in your research and why should people care? A good tip to remember here is that you don't need to include a detailed theoretical or conceptual background
1: to your research. A little bit of context is great but it's basically a given
0: that you've grounded your research in theory and it's not just plucked out of thin air. Right, so don't spend too long on your introduction and you don't need to include lots of references either. The second point is to explain how you investigated or approached the problem. Describe your method. Right, so this should include information about your research design, your participants and your analysis, being as concise as possible. So I normally try to include these three things within one or two sentences. Third, you want to talk about your results, so focus on your key findings. And finally, you need to explain what your findings mean in the context of the problem you described. So what are the implications for research and practice going forward? And what are the big take home messages? The next challenge is to keep within the word limit. Most abstracts
1: are usually limited to around 300 words.
0: Right, so there really isn't a lot of space. So the emphasis should be on why your research is unique and what it contributes to the field. Are there
1: any common mistakes to avoid?
0: Yes, so many abstracts suffer from a lack of editing. They are too long, they're poorly written or contain difficult terminology. You also can't afford to go over the word limit, submit late or forget to include the names of key contributors or you might not be too popular. (laughs) Any final do's we've missed? So do spend time thinking of a catchy title, do spend time
1: checking your spelling and your grammar, and last of all, do get a friend or colleague to read it over. That's a great jargon check.
0: Don't forget, registration and abstract submission for the Appearance Matters 7 conference is now open. The deadline for oral presentations, posters and symposia is the 22nd of January and the deadline for rapid communication posters is the 1st of April. You can submit online via our website where you can also find out more information about the conference itself. All abstracts will be reviewed by the scientific committee and you'll be notified within four to six weeks. All accepted abstracts will be published on the Body Journal website following the conference. Thank you for listening to this third
1: episode of Appearance Matters, the podcast. We would like to thank everyone who's contributed to this podcast and also the University of West of England and the Healing Foundation for sponsoring the Appearance Matters 7 conference. Special thanks also goes out to David Insacow for our theme music and join us next time when we'll be talking about appearance and public health.